From the Partnership for Public Service, you're listening to Transition Lab, a behind-the-scenes look at presidential transitions. I'm David Marchick. Today on Transition Lab, we're joined by Chris Liddell, the Deputy Chief of Staff in the White House. We're taping this on January 19th, the last day of President Trump's term, and the last day that Chris will have his White House-issued computer and phone. Now, Chris has a distinguished background in both the public and the private sector. In addition to his service in the White House, he served as chief financial officer for two of the most iconic American companies, Microsoft and General Motors. He's also one of the nation's best transition experts. Prior to this role, he was executive director of the Romney transition in 2012. And as our listeners know, that transition made huge strides and broke new ground in transition planning. After that election, obviously Romney lost, Chris and Governor Mike Levitt, who chaired that transition, memorialized their learnings in a book called The Romney Readiness Project. And for anybody interested in transition, that book has become a must read. Chris has had really a pretty tough job this year because he was responsible for doing two things at the same time, planning for a potential second term of President Trump, should Trump have won the election, and also being responsible for preparing the U.S. government for a handover to President Biden. Now, this transition really was like no other. It's, It's had good, bad, and really, really ugly, including on January 6th. Now, as our listeners know, I'm not a journalist. The Partnership for Public Service is a nonpartisan organization, and we've worked closely with three stakeholders, the Trump White House, the career officials in the agencies, and the Biden transition team. So we're not here really to litigate the Trump presidency. We will talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly, but most importantly, we thought our listeners should hear Chris's perspective from his perch in the White House on planning for the 2020 transition. So Chris, welcome and thanks for being here. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for doing this. So let's start with how you became interested and involved in transition. So you're a business leader, you had a very you know, accomplished and a distinguished business career, and then all of a sudden you find yourselves running a presidential transition in 2012. How did that happen? So... Uh... Back in 2012, I just finished the General Motors IPO and had left General Motors. And so I, so I had a pause in my career and I'd always wanted to do public service. So the, the 2012 presidential election was kicking off and, and I volunteered to the Romney organization and said, look, I'm happy to help in any way. And that was relatively early in the piece. And I got to know Governor Mike Levitt and and he was asked by Mitt to to set up the transition operation. And and Governor Levin and I, he invited me to join him. And so we started literally as a two-person team. I thought the transition concept was was fascinating and it, it suited my sort of planning and, and thinking. So I agreed to join him. And that was back in, I think, March or so of 2012. And, and with his help, we built up to a staff of something like 500 people just before the election, and and so it was a sort of a startup on on steroids, and I learned an enormous amount and very much enjoyed the process. 
And after Romney lost, you decided to do something unique, which is most transitions, they're done in secret, they're done in the background as they should be, and then people just kind of go off and do their thing. You said, actually, we should take the learnings and publish them. And why did you do that? And why did Mike and Romney think that was a good idea? So one of the the benefits of losing is you end up with a bit of uh, time on your hands. And Mike and I said, how how should we use that time? And uh, we really felt that some of the work that we had done was was extremely good, even though it clearly didn't have the chance to be implemented. And and we felt that transitions are special, that they are, to the extent possible, bipartisan. They really are a special part of the American presidential election tradition. And so we wanted to document it. And, and we had learned from previous transitions and, and benefited from theirs. And we wanted to build on that. We believe then and still do that transitions should build on each other and that the expertise and, and knowledge that's built up from one should be passed on to the other. We benefited from previous ones. We wanted to contribute back and hopefully be useful for future ones. Let's move to this year. So this year you had two jobs. And in any re-election, the second part of your job was very difficult. But let's start with the first part of your job, which is traditionally in year four, there's some planning for a potential year five. And we've had Josh Bolton and Dennis McDonough on this podcast, former chiefs of staff for Presidents Bush and uh, Obama, second term chiefs of staff. And they both said that senior White House officials and the president should do more in year four to prepare for the possible year five. And so how did you approach that job in case President Trump had won re-election? So there are two areas that I really wanted to focus on. And, I, and I, again, I benefited from the knowledge of the previous chiefs of staff, and, and they were incredibly helpful in some of their comments of thinking about how to prepare uh, for a potential term two. The first area that I wanted to focus on was on policy. And I really wanted policy to be a continuum rather than a a significant change. And so back in January of last year, January 2020, we had an offsite with all of the major deputies here at the White House and set down not only the policy objectives for the year of 2020, but how they would flow into 2021. In particular, some of the most significant legislative ideas. And as you know, after an election is a period where you can potentially get some really significant legislative work done. So we started to build the platform for the policy initiatives that we would have put in place in 2021 had we won back in January of last year. And I started to work on how what we did in 2020 would flow through to 2021. I didn't want the election and the transition to be a significant disruption. I wanted it to be a a continuum from one to the other. So that was sort of focus area number one. Focus area number two was actually exactly the opposite, which was people. Uh, what happens with uh, White Houses is, is the structures and processes to some extent start to mold around the people here. And it's quite hard to change them whilst those people are in place. And so what I wanted to do on the people side was actually think about not only a changing of people, which you inevitably have between one administration and, and the second term, but think about how we could structurally change the White House in in some interesting ways to make it significantly more efficient. And I'd benefited from having worked here for four years, so really understanding how the place does work and could work in a much more detailed fashion. So I I had some plans around 
how I wanted to quite significantly change structure and working operations and cadence of the White House which really required uh, a change in some of the people. And, and we were expecting those people to go just in the natural course. So that really was a chance for a, a disruptive and I think very positive change that uh, I would have implemented in the transition to the second term had it happened. Now, Governor Christie was on this podcast. He obviously led the pre-transition, pre-election transition work in 2016 for President Trump. But you know, he said, and there have been lots of documents about this, that, you know, President Trump and candidate Trump in 2016, he doesn't really, he's not really a planner, doesn't like transitions, didn't want to spend a lot of time. So did you, this work that you did on a potential second term, was that mostly staff run or did he get involved? Did he focus on it or did he just say kind of what he did in 2016, which is, I can figure this out. I don't need a lot of planning. It was mostly staff run. And, and I don't think that, to be honest, is peculiar to President Trump. I, I, from what I've heard in previous chiefs of staff, generally speaking, the president spends most of his time focused on policy and day to day, as they do when they're campaigning as well. So it was really staff driven. And I had some quite specific ideas that I thought were valuable. I checked in a couple of times, but to a large extent, we were driving at a staff level. So now let's turn to preparations for a potential handover to President-elect Biden, which, and for anybody in a White House, it's difficult to plan for your boss's departure. In this White House, it seems like an impossible job. So I mentioned that we're going to talk about the good and the bad and the ugly. And I think what most of our listeners don't know is that your work pre-election which was really under the radar. The president was not involved at all. There was very little press and it was very smooth. There's something called the Presidential Transition Act, which lays out a bunch of requirements for the White House and the agencies to execute prior to the election. And you did that. So tell us what you did and how you did that. And how did you keep that from going off the rails? So as you say, the Presidential Transition Act is very useful in that it sets down a series of markers. And so those markers are are useful to to really force activity and to make sure that we we stay on on track towards the election day. So way back in April last year, I think it was, we we sent out an initial memo to agency and department heads providing guidance on on what their obligations were. So that, that sort of kicked the process off and just signaled to people I think most importantly that that we were expecting them to do what was set down. So that was April, uh, May, I think it was May, we set up the White House uh, Transition Coordinating Council. Again, this is required, but that again, just signaling as much as possible that this was business as normal. Then there were a series of, of meetings just to report that we were on track. But most importantly, uh, we worked with the GSA in particular, who were then working with agencies to put together the the briefing books and, and so forth and all of the requirements that we would need once election happened. So we had these main markers and, and below the surface of those markers, we were just working away steadily with mainly with career people uh, just to make sure that we were as ready as possible and trying to emphasize to them that despite the, you know, the politics out in the open, that the transition side of things should 
should continue as normally as possible. You did two things, which I think were both an effort to make sure that the pre-election transition planning part was not politicized. One is you said, I want to work directly with the career officials at GSA, Mary Jabird, who's the outstanding transition coordinator of career federal uh, civil servant. And second is, I'm going to take essentially what Obama did in 2016 and then just do that. What was your approach and why did you pursue those two things where you worked directly with the career people and then you basically did what Obama did, which pretty much was what Bush did eight years earlier? Well, firstly, a call out to Mary. Mary is just an unbelievable professional, and it's just it's been a delight to work with her. And as soon as I met her, I knew we were in good hands. So uh, I think part of that is personality. She was just such a pleasure and so professional in everything that she did that she she made that approach easy. But regardless of, of the personality, it, it was important for me just from continuity perspective to have career people there, ones who had some experience from the past and, and who are professional and to depoliticize, as you said, as much as possible. The, the transitions should be as apolitical as, as they possibly can be. And the career people really do a great job. And if you're lucky enough to find someone like Mary, uh, you're in really great hands. So that was one aspect. The other aspect was precedent. I think precedent is good. And we only have a transition every four years, and there haven't been that many in the sort of modern age with the scale and complexity of what we have. So building up a body of precedent, I think, is is very useful. Now, you need to occasionally change the approach. But just going back to what the previous person did who went back to the previous person before, I think helps to depoliticize it because you can basically say, look, this is what they did. This is where they drew the line. There's some judgment done. And, and we don't want every time one of those judgments comes up to, for, for it to be a huge fight. You, you want it to be as smooth as possible and as, you know, as well done as possible. And precedent is helpful. And over time, we will build up precedent. And uh, again, you know, circumstances change. So Sometimes you have to change the precedent, but if we can build up a, a, a body of, of it, I think that's incredibly useful. So it literally becomes mechanical and people don't have to think about the politics of the decision they're making. So one of the things that Ted Kaufman and Johannes Abraham talked about on, on their podcast was scenario planning. And they essentially said, all right, let's take every possible scenario and try to anticipate it. And I think you did the same thing. And you and I had many, many discussions over the months about what might happen, what might happen smoothly, what might happen not smoothly. So, you know, as you approached pre-election, what were the scenarios that you planned for in your mind uh, that could possibly happen on the day after the election? Right. Well, uh, as, as we discussed, the scenarios were a clean victory to the Trump administration, a clean victory by the Biden administration, and then a disputed situation. And in the disputed case, I think I said disputed A was disputed for a relatively short period of time, cleared up and then moved on, and then disputed for a long period of time. So clean loss and, and clean victory, uh, either way, clearly would have been relatively easy to deal with. And, and there's plenty of good precedent on that. I'd been involved in, in some of that, so I, I had a very clear idea of what needed to be done either way. And uh, obviously, you know, all of the systems and processes are set up for either of those scenarios. 
on the disputed situation, I started to build some scenarios around that. And as I say, there was there was the short version uh, where you know there was a week or two went past and and then it was tidied up and we moved on and then there was an extended one. In the short one, I wasn't too concerned about that having lack of access to the to the agencies would have been a nuisance value uh, to the incoming administration, but not that significant initially, mainly because there's so much for, for the incoming people to do straight away. You have to have to choose a lot of their key people, uh, the fielding inquiries left, left, right and center. So for a period of time, it's incredibly inconvenient and annoying, but not that significant to the final outcome if you have a situation where some of the things that a clean victory or clean loss you know, would allow don't happen. The real issue is the one that we started to face, which is it, it dragged on and on and on. And therefore, clearly, as the transition goes on, it becomes more and more critical that the president-elect gets intelligence briefings, the teams start to get into the agencies and the components of the White House. So Unfortunately, the scenario that was the one that I was most worried about was the one that came to play. Right. I mean, I remember one conversation where, you know, we basically said this is a nightmare scenario and it's much worse than we ever could have even imagined. We'll come back to that. But let's go to we've talked about the good. Let's go to the bad. So the election occurs on November 3rd. That following Saturday, all the networks call the election for the vice president. But then the GSA administrator, Emily Murphy, refused to ascertain the outcome. The president of the United States did not recognize the outcome of the election, even though it was clear. And you had no role in the GSA determination. So what happened then? And what were you doing during this three-week period when this whole ascertainment debate was going on? (laughs) That was one of the probably most frustrating periods that I've ever seen. Essentially, we were just on hold. We couldn't do anything. And clearly, I wanted to get on with it. Uh, We were ready to go. But until the GSA administrator ascertains, it's impossible really to do any of the things that are set down. And, you know, Emily Murphy was in in a terrible position. But really, just for that period of time, we were literally sitting on our hands ready to go, having done all the work, but unable to do anything. And so what are the conversations of the White House at this point? I mean, the outcome of the election was clear. History shows that this was not one of the closest elections, 306 electoral votes. It wasn't even one of the closest elections in the last 40 or 50 years. What is the conversation in the White House where you have a president basically saying, I don't recognize the outcome, and the outcome is pretty clear? How did that work? Well, I don't want to get into the ins and outs of the, the election itself. I was sitting there trying to f- decide how we were going to make a, a transition work on a compressed time. And I was hoping, as the days went on, I was hoping that we would resolve it as quickly as possible so we could get on with it. I, I had no connection with the GSA administrator, and, and I you know, specifically didn't want to have. And so I was really in, in her hands as to when she did that. But I think it raises a, a wider issue that we really don't want to ever have this situation again. We need to look at a solution where the incoming administration can get access to a lot of the things that they would would do and should do as a result of the Transition Act, regardless of where the you know politics and the dispute associated with the election. So 
at the moment they're tied together and normally that wouldn't be a problem but we've now had two disputed elections albeit totally different circumstances in 20 years so we have to think about the fact that this can happen again where there's a dispute going on and in my mind we need to be able to split and so let the legal processes play out as they should or could but at the same time not slow the transition planning down and it's something certainly I'd be happy to work with the partnership on or anyone who feels the same way where we should have legislation that allows a provisional ascertainment for example to occur for an incoming administration to get certain rights for the president-elect to start getting security briefings for a lot of the time-sensitive issues to start, regardless of whether the actual formal election has been settled or not. And I think those two could be run in parallel. And to my mind, that's the big lesson from, from those initial weeks. Okay, so let's fast forward. So pressure builds the election further clarifies. And so on Monday, November 23rd, which is about three weeks late, Emily Murphy issues the ascertainment letter and the agencies work with the Biden team. So then what did you do and how did that go? So we were we were literally ready to go on a day-by-day basis. And, and so Mary uh, and I were, were talking pretty regularly and saying, you know, are you ready? Are you ready? Yes, yes. And so as soon as we got the ascertainment, uh, she... She went into action, contacted obviously the the Biden transition team, and we had access to a number of the agencies the next morning. So we were all sitting there waiting to go, and and we pushed the button straight away. Now, because it had been weeks later, you know, it wasn't quite as smooth, it wasn't quite as comprehensive as it would have been had it been the day after the election. Uh, the the incoming team had to sort of gear themselves back up again, but we pretty much straight away went into action. And again, I, I pay compliments to the the GSA team and all the various agencies who have put together the briefings. They were ready to go, and a lot of that preparatory work meant that we could kickstart the engine straight away. And so overall, you know, the Biden team has said that many and most agencies cooperated, but there were a few that just refused to cooperate. I think USTR, DOD, uh, OMB. In the Transition Act, there's a memorandum of understanding um, between the Biden team and the White House. And there's essentially an escalation clause. So if when they escalated these problems to you, you would call the agency heads and say, hey, you're not cooperating. And they would say, we don't want to cooperate. Or how did that go? What were those conversations like? So just before we get onto the problems, just want to recognize that you know, 90% of plus of the agencies and components went about the job really well. So I don't want it to be lost on people that there are a lot of good actors out there who really tried hard and did the right thing. And there were some situations where there were some reluctant people, but I rang them up and, and basically appealed to their, their better side and we managed to smooth it over and get on. So I don't want people to come away with the impression that there was a you know, significant re- resistance across the whole uh, of the government. That was not true. There were some agencies which I think were uncooperative, and I, you know, I tried my best to do that, but I don't really have the teeth to do it. I was doing it based on personalities. Again, I think that's an area where it is worthwhile looking at. You, know, you do have an unusual situation where you have 
the outgoing administration in charge of the transition to the incoming one. And that relies to some extent on goodwill. And if that goodwill is absent, it's hard to actually make it happen. I'm not a great fan, generally speaking, of regulatory fixes or deterministic processes. But this is an area with a a little bit of time uh, under the belt uh, I want to think about too. And again, try and come up with some solutions based on how do we take away some of the discretion and need for goodwill and make it a little bit more prescriptive so that everyone knows exactly what is required and when. And and perhaps it's an area where we have to be more prescriptive than I would otherwise tend to be personally. Right. So just for our, our listeners, tell me if you agree with this, but most agencies were eager to cooperate and did. There were some agencies that were reluctant and you essentially pushed them and prodded them and they moved to be cooperative. And then there were a handful of agencies that basically just refused. And even with your pushing, it didn't have an impact. Is that an accurate statement? Yes, maybe refused is too strong, but certainly did the absolute minimum and that was really not not good enough in the circumstances. And the difference here was that, for example, with Obama and Bush, you had a president of the United States that basically instructed all of their cabinet agencies, the White House, to cooperate. And here you didn't. And so you were basically doing as much as you could, but without the president's direct intervention or instructions, it made it impossible for for you to push some agencies. Yeah. And again, I, I come back to I don't think we should have a situation where that's needed. This should just happen as a matter of course and as a matter of expectation. It it shouldn't be a situation where you're requiring, you know, goodwill and, and arbitrary uh, decisions to the extent possible. So we've talked about the good, we've talked about the bad. Let's go to the ugly. So I think that you we anticipate a lot of the problems that would happen, but what happened on January 6th, I think shocked everybody. It was one of the most disturbing days in American history. It was an insurrection. There will be criminal actions. There's been an impeachment. History will judge what happened. Where were you when this broke? And what were your reactions? What did you do? Uh, Well, ironically, I was in the West Wing working on transition matters uh, when it all all broke. And uh, I saw it uh, on the television screen at the same time as everyone else. I guess I was horrified initially and heartbroken afterwards. And subsequently, it, it, setting aside the event, the everything associated with it, you know, which was a, a disaster for, for the country, from the transition point of view, it, it made everything then exponentially more difficult as well. And there were some press reports that said that you considered resigning on that day. How did you think about that? How did you weigh the pros and cons, and why did you decide to stay? Yeah, not surprisingly, I mean, none of, anyone who who saw that wanted to resign and, and, and move away and, and just have nothing to do with the event or anything associated with it, and, and especially those people who, who didn't feel like they expected that, that there was any chance that anything like that could happen. And, and I respected, you know, some people decided that that was their opportunity to leave and that that was their, their protest, if you like, at, at, at what happened. I thought long and hard about that, and I came to a different conclusion, and I, I felt that 
the following couple of weeks leading up to today and tomorrow, it was probably more important rather than less important that I was here, that the work that I had to complete, you know, when you look at a transition, as, as I said earlier, the first couple of weeks or so really are, are not that important in terms of, of the interface between the outgoing and the incoming administrations. But the closer you get to inauguration, the more critical it gets. So to walk away when the very most important time was coming up and then at a time where obviously tensions had gone through the roof, I just didn't feel like that was my duty. My duty was to be here. So the easy thing would have been to leave that day and never come back, but the slightly harder and I think more appropriate thing to do was to stay. And I mean, there have been other events throughout the administration which have been you know, disturbing. Charlottesville, have there been discussions or consideration of res- resignations at previous events, or was this kind of so bad that it rose to the level where people said, I just, I can't be here? How did this event compare to, you know, previous problematic events during the Trump term? Oh, this was un- unprecedented. Uh, you know, clearly there had been other times where there'd been issues, but this was unprecedented across the board. And, and you know, I want to pay respect to some of my other colleagues who, who stayed on, people like Robert O'Brien, the National Security Advisor, Pat Cipollone, the General Counsel. You know, the, there was a core of us who, who really felt collectively and, and clearly we talked to each other about it. We felt collectively it was our duty to stay. So I, I think there was a, this was much more significant and board-based than, than previous uh, issues. Going back to kind of the scenarios, this was so much worse than any worst-case scenario that you or I imagined. In fact, the whole denial of the outcome of the election went on. We thought it might have happened for a week or two weeks, but... You know, Trump still hasn't even called Biden. You know, what's the mood at the White House today, a day before you leave? And how does this whole transition, which has been, you know, perhaps the bumpiest transition in, I don't know, 1860, 1932, it's hard to compare. What's the mood over there among the staff that have been there for a long time? We're down to a core staff now here, a skeleton staff. And so really, I think everyone's focused on tomorrow. And I just have to say on a slightly more positive note, you know, the relationship with the Biden transition team, I think, has been as good as it could possibly be over the, certainly throughout this period. You know, it's been challenging at times, in particular the last couple of weeks. But most of my interactions over the last few days and, and today is very much about how we land the plane as well as we possibly can tomorrow at, at 12 o'clock. And, and so those of us that are left here are really focused on that. And, you know, that's as constructive as we can possibly be. And again, I, I, you know, I want to call out Johannes, who's, who's been tremendous to work with, Jeff Zients before, before him, who was running the transition. At an operational level, people should, should feel good that the, the operational people here, uh, you know, people like Robert O'Brien, um, have been dealing with the, their counterparts. And that relationship, I think, has been, if anything, strengthened over the last couple of weeks because of the adversity that people have been feeling. So I think the mood here is everyone wants to get through tomorrow. We're all you know, praying for a peaceful and successful day, but we're all like focused 100% on the job. Right. I ask this to every one of the guests on Transition Lab, which is, 
you've just been through this, you know, incredible four years and an even more incredible 77 days of the transition. We have one more day left. You anticipated a lot of problems. The outcome and the events were much worse than I, I imagine. So my question, which I ask every other guest is, you know, what do you know now that you wish you knew before and how would you have approached what you've done differently? You know, with 2020 hindsight, what would you have done differently? Yeah, it's a really tough one. And I think I need time to reflect. I, again, I, I, my, my focus has been in the last couple of weeks in particular, just let's get this done as well as we possibly can for the country's and everyone's sake. I guess my initial reaction would be that if if I if I knew what I knew going through, I would have pushed pretty hard for some legislative changes in the months coming up to the election because I think even from the middle of last year, it was quite clear that the chance of a disputed election was going up. And you know, we all hoped that wouldn't happen, but there were signals relatively early in the piece. And I think with some goodwill on the Hill, we could have said, look, this might happen. If it's going to happen, this is what we need to do. So perhaps we could have avoided some of the initial few weeks where nothing happened and that set us back. And then, you know, we lost lost time and effort. So maybe predicting some of the things that did happen, not, not clearly the riot on January 6th, but all the other sort of aspects of, of the dispute and trying to have a fix beforehand if I'd known how badly it played out, then maybe I would have pushed a lot harder for that. Do you think a legislative fix would have helped? The attitude, the approach of the president has been so unusual and so outside of norms that I'm not sure better legislation would have fixed this problem. Do you, you think it would have? Well, that's why I said I'd like some time to reflect on that and, and to come up with some suggestions. But one that I mentioned during the podcast, the, the concept of, of having a provisional ascertainment or conditional ascertainment would have at least got the transition off to a slightly better start. Now, that wouldn't have solved the disputed election aspect of it. That's a different discussion. But the transition side of things could have at least got off on a relatively good footing straight away. Uh, we could have got the president-elect intelligence briefings sooner than than he he did so at, at least it would have perhaps taken the temperature down a little bit it wouldn't have solved the bigger issues that we faced but at least it would have helped certainly from from all the work that i was trying to do and uh, that i think became problematic so here's my final question chris and again these are hard issues and it's been a very very difficult time for our country and you know, a tragic time in many many respects so we've been working together you know for a year it's almost hard to imagine what's happened over this year. You and I had, you know, got together with Josh Bolton about a year ago to start this process. And since then, we've had a global pandemic, a racial reckoning, a deep recession, you know, multiple COVID outbreaks at the White House, which you've been spared of, thankfully, a tough election and an attempt to overturn the results of our democracy, which is, you know, unprecedented. So you know, I realize you want some time to reflect, but, you know, what are your reflections on this last year as you prepare to leave office and as President Trump prepares to have his last day in office? Yeah, so this has personally been the toughest assignment in my life by, by a distance. And 
none of us want to go through what we went through in the last few weeks again. But I guess maybe I can finish on a slightly more positive note if that's possible. In the last few weeks, we've thrown just about every possible bad scenario that you can think of at the country. And I believe we will have a successful and peaceful transition tomorrow. The institutions of this government have held. So it's, it's hard to imagine a more difficult set of circumstances. But at 12 o'clock tomorrow, President-elect Biden will become President Biden. The incoming transition team will be here, set up, ready to go. I think we've covered every possible scenario. So in the most difficult circumstances that are humanly possible, the institution of the United States government and the transition associated with it, I think will be successful. Well, Chris Liddell, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks, Dave. appreciate the opportunity to talk. If you like Transition Lab, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast apps.